at the time you you tend to think oh i found my way out i don't believe it anymore yes i, I want to help these folks stop believing this stuff too because it's probably not true and i can see the harm now that i'm outside looking in i can see the harm that these beliefs are causing so we tend to think yeah. oh i just need to give them evidence i just need to provide them with some facts and then they'll change their mind and what we seem to be finding is that that approach isn't the best way, especially when you're dealing with a one-on-one -on -one situation like that. Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I am going to keep this brief because I've got a great conversation to share with you and I want to get right to it. But the first thing I've got to do here, out of the gate, is say thank you to everyone who's supporting this show on Patreon. You've heard me talk about this before and I'll talk about it again, but today I'm feeling it because this episode that you're about to listen to took me a lot of time to set up, took me a lot of time to do the research so I knew how to talk to this guy and I wouldn't have the time to do that kind of work if it weren't for you and the others that are supporting this show on Patreon, whether it's for a buck a month or a hundred bucks a month. I love you all. If we just had a bunch more people jumping in, a buck a month, two bucks a month, five bucks a month, it would enable us to do a whole different level of quality here. Like we've already moved up a level in quality since we started this Patreon thing. So I just thank you because uh, stuff like what we're doing right now would just not be possible without you. And if you want to find out more, go to bartcampola.org. It's there or go to Patreon and just hit Humanize Me. Um, you'll find us. I got a movie recommendation for you before we go any further too. Marty and I went and saw the movie 8th Grade, Bo Burnham's movie. And all I can tell you is, is that it is a humanist masterpiece. It really portrays a person, a few people, but mainly this one young 8th grade girl in a moment of her life that I think all of us can recognize. And that strangely enough, because of the interrelationship between this girl and social media is actually sort of universal in some ways. The feelings that she has about herself as she is inside and herself as she's portraying herself to the outside world, all those things. It's just a beautiful, beautiful portrayal. And not only is she a beautiful character and is the stuff relevant, but there is a parenting moment in that movie that is in its own way just as good and just as moving as the one in Call Me By Your Name, which I saw last year. And I love it when I see a parent talking to their kid in a way that inspires me to want to talk to kids more and to send them more messages of thoughtful, sensitive, appropriate affirmation, not just like, you're the best, you're awesome. These are beautiful moments. And, and so all I can say is, if you're looking for a movie to see, a film to see, I cannot recommend Eighth Grade more highly to you in, 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 in the humanist way that we have here. All right. Now then, this show is about trying to make the most of our lives uh, in a secular way. And for many of us on the other side of faith. And for those of us that are secular humanists, who are trying to pursue goodness in this life because we think this life is the only one that we have. One of the big challenges is how to talk and relate to believers, especially the believers that are close to us, but also the ones we meet out there in the world because they're, they're, they predominate and, they're, and, 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 and sometimes they're very open and in your face and, and sometimes they're very open and in your family. And I think we've done a really good job on the show of talking about and illustrating the attitude, the vibe, the warmth, the, the concern that you want to have for people who are on the other side of the faith divide. But that sort of begs the question, what, what are we supposed to be talking about? What, what's a good conversation content-wise? And that's why 
over the last few years, I keep hearing about this thing called street epistemology. It's a way of talking to people. And the people that are its proponents are so excited about it and so thrilled about it that I mean, immediately my hackles go up. I go, uh-oh, these guys, are, these guys are fanatics. And they're always talking about Anthony. Anthony, Anthony Magnabosco, who is kind of the Pied Piper of street evangelism and one of its great proponents and who has a million videos on YouTube of him talking to people. He says it'll be for five minutes and he always is open to stopping at five minutes, but usually after five minutes of talking with this guy, people want to talk more because he's good to talk to. And uh, I started checking out Anthony Magnabosco. I actually was at a conference. I was speaking at a conference that he was speaking at, and I didn't get to meet him at the conference, but I got to go hear his talk. And I was excited by some of it and frankly troubled by some of it. I wasn't sure. I think probably like to use a pie chart, which Anthony uses a lot, I would say maybe I'm like, I was 35% troubled by it and 65% just jealous because Anthony's so good at talking with people in a way that I'm frankly not good at talking with people. He leaves time for, he listens well, he doesn't interrupt. And he draws out of people really important stuff. Not important to him, important for them to hear themselves what they're saying to him. And and boy, you look at any of these videos and you look at the comments and it's like 80,000 comments. I mean, it, it really, he is kind of drawing a whole bunch of people into this conversation into this way of having a conversation. So here's the thing. I'm going to apologize in advance or else I'm going to like congratulate myself in advance. I don't know which because I've heard him interviewed by a lot of people and they're always, he always spends a half an hour explaining what street epistemology is. And I did my own homework and I just jumped right into the conversation, right into the shop talk. And we had a conversation that was like two people that are deeply concerned about how to make things better in this world, talking about a very specific kind of way of making things better. And we jumped right into it like we were old friends. I had never talked to this guy before this conversation, but man, we had exchanged enough emails that he knew that I had some critiques and he thought I was credible guy to, to give him. And I knew he was a really open listener. And so I did my prep. And so we jumped right into it. So like, listen, if you don't know what street epistemology is, stop the podcast right now and go to streetepistemology.com. There's a little article there called The Basics. It's a really good summary. I'm not going to do it right here, but it's a great little summary of what street epistemology is, the way in which you talk to people. It's, It's kind of the heart of it is Socratic questioning and really seeking to understand the other person rather than seeking to debate them or trying to like decimate them in an argument. If you don't want to do that, there's a great YouTube video that I saw. I mean, there's lots of them of Anthony doing it, but he's, there's one where he's giving a talk at Atheist United, which is a group I've spoken to out in LA, out in LA. Um, and, and it's called, we've been doing it wrong, colon street epistemology. And you can find that on YouTube. And uh, it, it looks like it's an hour and a half long, but the, la- the it, it really the, the guts of it is like thir- the first 35 minutes and they show videos of Anthony actually talking to people and then he talks about what he was doing. And so if you've got the time, that's great. And you could just jump into the conversation and at least you'll kind of get the energy that we had. But yeah, so okay, without any further ado, this is me and Anthony Magnabosco talking shop on the show. Good to talk to you. Yeah, we're like two bald guys with goatees who really like people. We have something in common. <laughs> What's not to love about us, right? I know. It's, it's all good. I've seen your name off and on over the years, and I figured one day we're going to meet. And, and, and this is the day. This Today's the, the day. day. I thought I was going to be in person in San Antonio at one point, but I was out of town when you, uh, you came through and gave a talk here, I think. Oh, you know, do you know those people? I do, yeah. I was just watching one of these videos, uh, the, the video of your talk to Atheist United, like where you show some videos and then you explain how the method works in between. Yeah. And I was thinking like, if you showed one of those seven minute videos to these kids, they would all see themselves in that kid. Mm-hmm. So, so I met your boy up there in Columbus. <laughs> yeah. And I, what a likable guy. He is. 
Yeah, Dan. <laughs> He's a great yeah. guy. And Dan comes kind of out of the world that I come out of. Um, is that the world that you come out of? Do you come out of evangelical Christianity at any point? I wouldn't say evangelical. When I hear that word, I kind of think strict by the book belief. Fundamentalism maybe even comes to mind. I mean, I, I was raised in a religious household, Catholic. We went to church every week. Uh, we celebrated all the special masses that you needed to celebrate, and we wouldn't eat meat on Fridays, I think even including fish, if I'm not mistaken, at one point uh, during, I think it was Lent, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. So I was raised in a, in a religious household, but I was always this. I was the skeptical one in my family. I was the one that was questioning. Um, I was the one that was pretending to be sick because I didn't want to go to church. I just I didn't see the value in it. Uh, so, I what did what did you see the value in when you were a kid? Like what what was what was your thing? Were you a sports guy? Were you a ooh a, a science guy? What were you doing? Hmm. Well, that was right around the age where it was feasible to get a home computer. I had a TI-994A computer in my house. I was learning how to code. I was playing video games. I was also involved in sports and that type of thing. I, I guess if you were to ask me what was valuable to me, I would say probably the friendships that I had. And they were not dependent on us believing in the same deity. That It was just independent of that. It was things that we just had in common, wanting to have fun, wanting to do good things. Uh, religion for we, myself personally was not that big of an issue. And I was kind of always perplexed why it was for so many other people around me. Were you in Texas at the time? No, no, no. I lived, I grew up in the Midwest in the Chicago area. Where? Highly okay. Italian, highly Catholic area. Was there anything extraordinary about your, your upbringing or do you feel like, like, no, nah, I had like a kind of a basic upbringing? No, I mean, I, I just had really good loving parents. I was the oldest of, of, of four and- uh, my kids looked up to me. I, I did all sorts of odd jobs around the neighborhood. I, I would cut grass. I would shovel snow in the wintertime. Are you tight with your siblings? Not not these days. Not really anymore. No. I, I think no. my non-belief is kind of, even though I was a skeptic back then, I never really identified as an atheist until, I don't know, probably within the last 12 years maybe. And then I think that scared them. I was, I was well, <laughs> I think I, I brought a lot of that on myself to be quite honest. Because of the way you came out to them? Yeah. Well, it wasn't so much the way that I came out to them. It was the way that I interacted with them on their beliefs that I didn't think were true. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I was really in their face. I was pointing out facts, uh, ridiculing them. Kind of everything that we try not to do when we're using street epistemology. Yeah. You know what? I, I meet so many people who when I'll give a talk about how to come out to your family, you know, or, or how to interact with people of belief, will come up to me and go like, man, where were you? Where were you when I needed you when I first came out? Because like they burn all their bridges and they, or they, they make, they do all their damage in the first year when they're angry and they feel like they, they've just been, you know, like they feel like they have all of life's answers now and they're pissed at having been deceived and, they just go hard yeah. and they're like, man, if I could just do those first six or eight months over again, I think my life would be a lot better now. Mm. And I don't know if you've, if you've had that experience yourself where you're like, oh, where you, you meet people and they're like, where were you teaching me how to be like gentle and, and thoughtful and to be in partnership with the person I'm in conversation with? Mm. <laughs> I know? never really thought of it that way. I honestly never really regretted not having role models to show me a better way um, because I ended up learning from it. And I suppose because I, I made the journey and I, I found myself on the other side and I could look back and see, I didn't hold anyone responsible or really have any regrets for people not stepping up to guide me. However, as I think about it now, because you're, you're making me think about it, it probably would have been a pretty nice thing to have. Uh, it's funny too, because I get a lot of feedback from people who watch the interactions where we're using street epistemology or I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate it SE. And they thank me for showing them a different way of engaging with people. So it, it honestly would have been better, I think, if I had engaged with them using a different method, but I didn't feel upset that there wasn't anyone to show me how to do it back then. No, and, 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 and a lot of times 
like people will tell me later on down the road, they'll say like, I thought I was doing the best thing I could do. Like I was like, I was trying to save my, you know, brothers or sisters or whatever from, you know, a harmful belief that was, you know, and, and so like they felt really good about what they were doing at the time, mm-hmm. but then they like, they, they get farther down the road and they look back and they go like, oh my gosh, like I was, they were, I was backfiring affecting them. Like, like the more I attacked them, the more they doubled down. And like, I actually was harming them. I, I wasn't helping them. Like I drove them deeper into the, into the, into whatever they were into. Right. But um, it's, it's so counterintuitive. I think at the time you, you tend to think, oh, I found my way out. I don't believe it anymore. Yes. I, I want to help these folks stop believing this stuff too, because it's probably not true. And I can see the harm now that I'm outside looking in, I can see the harm that these beliefs are causing. So we tend to think, yeah. oh, I just need to give them evidence. I just need to provide them with some facts and then they'll change their mind. And what we seem to be finding is that that approach isn't the best way, especially when you're dealing with a one-on-one situation like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny because it's a little ironic to me because you know the people that get let out of it is, as Christians, if, at least if they were in the evangelical movement that I was in. And, and, and that didn't mean like these hardcore fundamentalists, but it meant like people that felt like it was their duty to win people to Jesus. Um, and to go out there and share the good news, they should have learned in Christianity that you don't attack somebody's beliefs directly. You know, that that's not an effective method mm. because I mean, they taught you that in evangelism training, mm. you know, they, they, they like in reverse. And so it's weird to me sometimes, but I, I think there is this, just this for many people, it's almost like a visceral rage, um, not at the other person, but at the idea itself and at what it might be doing to them. And there's just a sense of like, we got to get you out of that burning house right now. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I looked at it. Uh, I, I reflected on these beliefs that I was taught to be true by people that I loved and trusted. And when you come to realize that these things are probably not true, you tend to lash out at those that taught it to you or that you see it being taught to. And I think yeah. that we do that because we we're mad at ourselves for having swallowed it. We're mad at ourselves for having believed it. And it's a it's a lot easier to be mad at somebody else than to be mad at yourself, I think. And that might explain why we why we lash out at other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's true that we project on like like it is easier to go like, you idiot. Like, because what you're really thinking is, what was wrong with me? Right. Um, exactly. Why did I fall for this? It's so simple now that I look at it. Why are they falling yeah. for it? And then we lash I out at that, them, and I think we're lashing out at our, at our past selves. I think there's a lot of that. I, that, that yeah, I, I know, I know there's a lot of that because I've excavated it with, a, with with friends, and they've sort of gone like, "Yeah, that's what it's really about for me." And when they when they sort of forgive themselves a little bit, um, then they're 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 easier on other people. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other thing is, I think there's just pure visceral fear, where where you see somebody playing with a knife, and you know, if you scream, you know, see a little child playing with a knife and if you scream at them, put that knife down, they're just as likely to like flinch and stab themselves with it. And so what you're really better off doing is walking up to them and going like, hey, what do you got there? Can I look at it? <laughs> I you love know, the metaphor. But, That's great. But yeah. But but you're because you love that kid, sometimes you do the thing that is absolutely not in their best interest. Um and so it's, it is counterintuitive and you have to teach yourself like, listen, do not go, do not grab the knife. You know, yeah. so I think let's talk about, talk about it. Yeah. That, I love that metaphor. And it, it reminds me of one of the reasons why I like to partake in engaging with people using the Socratic approach of, of SE. And it's, uh, it's because we care about people. That's really generally where this is coming from. We want to help them. We want to help them realize that they're holding a dangerous knife without just rushing them. <laughs> we would like to have them just reflect on the process that they use to get to their belief. Uh, well, and that and I was think, my it, th- I think it comes from a place of empathy. See, that was my thing when I was, when I was up at the Secular Student Alliance thing and I met Dan because he was giving a presentation, but he had a whole bunch of SE you know, team members around him. You know, like mm. they, they had the shirts and they were into it. And uh, and as I listened to them, I thought like, 
you know, the danger here is that sometimes when you feel like you've got an angle on the truth, um, whether it's AA or, you know, how to make money in real estate with no money down or whatever, when you feel like you've got this thing, there's a tendency for it to become about like winning people over or, you know, kind of it can become about the thing and about the spreading of truth mm. rather than about the loving of people. Mm. And so mm -hmm. as Dan and I were talking, I was like, dude, when you're up front, like you want to make it really clear that the reason you're wanting to enter into these conversations is not to build the movement or to save the world. It's because you care about the other person that you're talking to. Very well put. I'm encountering so many people who are uncertain that I'm justified in uh, claiming the higher ground or something like that. Like, I think there's a, I think there's a risk to that. Although when I look at the practitioners of street epistemology, we seem to be very conscious of the idea that we ourselves could very well be holding views that don't line with reality. And we want people to learn this method. This isn't just about tearing down beliefs or showing people that they've, they've built their belief on a shaky foundation and I'm superior to you. That's not at all. That last piece isn't isn't a part of it at all, at least from my perspective. But it's about giving people a chance to think about their beliefs and maybe change their mind and teach them these tools so that they can continue using them on their own beliefs and other people's beliefs. This isn't just for atheists to tear down a Christian or something like that. We want everyone to learn this method, the Christians included. Muslims included, no matter what your religious affiliation, uh, this is a tool set that we think everybody should learn and everybody should be asking others and themselves these types of questions. Well, and that's, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because I think that a lot of times in a lot of movements, what the leader embodies and why they're in it is so crystal clear to them that they don't necessarily feel the need to make it explicit at every time. Like, duh, can't you, you know, like everybody uh -huh. knows this. And I don't think, I, I think you need to be more explicit about mm. your, your care for the other person. And like about, you know, what's funny is like, I use the word love a lot and people go like, oh, that's because you come from that you know, Christian background, like, you know, you, like you, you got hangover. I'm like, no, no, no. I got a lot of science. Um, I got a lot of evidence. I got a lot of reason behind my commitment to loving relationships as my ultimate value. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's like the, the probably the, the surest way for me to make the most of my brief moment of existence. Mm. But, but I think like for you, I think it's really important that you make explicit the fact that as human beings, it makes sense for us to be concerned about other members of our tribe and that we're all better off when any one of us is better off. You know, when we, when we strengthen another person, it strengthens the tribe. It makes the world a safer place and all these good things. And so in a sense to sort of say like, this is a way of caring for other people. This is a way of connecting with other people. This is a way of making another person's life better. And I, I love the framing of that, that suggested framing. I think that that's, that's key. Uh, when we give talks on SE, there tends to be a good five or six things, misconceptions that we, that we want to address right away. This isn't just for atheists. You don't have to initiate talks. It doesn't have to be... Uh, a religious topic even. There's a good, like I said, four or five things that we want to clear out right away uh, because if you don't, people get become confused, I think, and less open to what you're saying. But I think you're right. I think that it, that is an important part that would have to be also addressed is this idea of why we're why are we motivated to do this? What's, what is really driving our actions? Yeah. And, and you know, the truth of the matter is, is that it, since I've sort of, been an outwardly like a, a known humanist guy. The people that are drawn to me, the people that like listen to my podcast are, I don't know if they're predominantly, but there's a huge chunk of them that are post-Christians. And what the, and they loved being Christian. 
They loved the fellowship. They loved the music. They loved going on missions trips and helping people. They loved being part of a community that was proactively seeking to be, become better people. And, and when they lost that narrative, it was incredibly painful for them because they were like, this is a lifestyle that works for me. And when, and, and when they encounter me, they go like, ooh, listen to that guy's voice. Like, look at the way, he, look at the meetings he's running. Like, that looks like what I came from. And I think that those people would be among the world's best street epistemologists because what make I watch you know when I've watched your your tapes and then I've watched some of other people's tapes and like you're better at it than a lot of people and part of that is because you know you've got your ten thousand hours in <laughs> but but part of that is because you exude warmth mm. in in a way that I recognize mm. and. A lot of times the people, like people like me who exuded warmth that way, a lot of times we found our way into church, not because the belief system made so much sense to us, because we, we wanted a place to exercise our warmth gifts. Mm. And I think that a lot of those people, when they get run out of the church because they can't believe the stuff anymore, they want to they wanna exercise their warmth gifts. And those warmth gifts would make them great street epistemologists, but they're not going to be drawn to it if they think it's about destroying Christians' faith. Because mm -hmm. like half their friends are still Christians. But they will be drawn to it if they think it's about loving other people. Well, there's a lot there. And uh, first, thanks for the compliment. Um, I, I do think one of the ways to get really good at SE is to ask yourself, what is motivating you to have these conversations in the first place? Am I doing yeah. this to feel good and superior? Or do I genuinely want to help somebody think about the process they use to get to their beliefs? Uh, mine is the latter. Another thing I think is it's really important to set aside your ego when you have these talks. This isn't about winning. This isn't about destroying people. I really do think it's about helping people, but being humble enough to recognize that this person who I talk to who really thinks Jesus is real might actually have used a reliable process to get there. I need to be open to that. So those, I think, are probably prerequisites if you want to be really good at this. Uh, and then maybe just to kind of close it out, I guess, viewing the people that I'm talking to as human beings and not somebody to conquer uh, is so important. It is so important. Um, I never felt comfortable arguing with people and debating with folks. I did it. I have videos that you can watch on my channel where I'm arguing with people and debating with them. I was never comfortable doing it. And I think it just, this this is a technique that worked better for me as a person. Now, what I think is really interesting is that people then watch these cordial exchanges where people are deeply reflecting on their beliefs, maybe even lowering their confidence, uh, most often with a total stranger here. And they think, oh my gosh, there's there's a different way than what I've been seeing atheists converse with believers. And they get very excited about it because I think they might see that this, this approach might resonate with their personality. The, mm -hmm. the, 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 the other thing is like, I had this other thought that's connected to this. Yeah. Because like when you said it's not about winning, I'm like, well, maybe I guess it all defines, you know, I, I have a friend who always says, What's a win for you in this situation? Sort of like, what are you going for here? Like, mm. how, do, how do you measure success? And, and I sort of think like some of those SE conversations that I've seen, you measure success by whether the person shakes your hand at the end and says, this was a good talk. You really got me thinking. Like, it's not a win necessarily. Like, we, we deconverted a Christian or we de you know, but like, we got somebody thinking. Like, that's a win. I think that's right. Like, if somebody ended a conversation with me and they abandoned a belief because of a bad reason, I would feel terrible. I wouldn't view that as a win, even though they may have come around to my point of view or something. Uh, no, ending it on a good term is is one of the one of the success factors I think that's there. Then being encouraged and and possibly remembering the conversation for years, down the road. If a conversation resonates with them, I would say that that's a win. If they walk away thinking, I need to find out some more information about this. I don't know if I could be so sure. Leaving them with a pebble that they can address later, I would say is a win. 
if they were upset I, with and, me. And, and if I just think in terms, if I just think in terms of L, the LGBT movement that's happened over the last thirty years, having them walk away from a conversation with an openly secular person and going like, "That person was really nice and respectful, and I enjoyed <laughs> talking to them," that's a win. Well, I think that that actually came up in my conversation with Dan. I think he uh, he identified it as an atheist at one point, and then he wasn't, and then we kind of we started debating, not debating, we started discussing definitions. But afterwards, I think he said that it was one of the rare times where he had a pleasant conversation with an atheist and he was able to hear some of the things that motivate us and how we how we see the world. And um, yeah, I think ending, on a, ending, ending in a way where somebody can better understand your point of view, I think is probably also a win. Now, you said something about, you know, is it is it rational or reasonable to believe? And I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is, do you, do you think that it is, even if a belief is unreasonable or unra- irrational, do you think that there are times when, depending on where, the, where and how a person was raised, that it's quite rational for them to believe it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can fully understand and empathize with people who believe things for poor reasons, simply because they get a benefit from it. In their mind, it is rational to believe it because that's just how they've been viewing the world ever since they learned this or they had some sort of experience that confirmed that it's true. So, no, I, I completely understand where where these folks are coming from. Uh, it's you, one of the reasons you know, why I, I think. I was just saying, I look at my dad, who's this hyper evangelical Christian, and. I don't think the beliefs he holds, you know, makes make much sense. But like he grew up in a in a community where everybody believed in Jesus. Every you know, his mother said to him, "If you touch that stove, you'll burn your hand," and that was true. If you work hard, you, you'll do better in school, and that was true. And she told him a thousand things that were true, and she told him that Jesus Christ was his Lord and Savior. She was a reli- you know, she was a reliable source of knowledge for that guy. I understand why he accepted her at face value. And then he tries Christianity. He prays the prayers. He goes to the retreats. He does the mission trips. And the question is, does practicing, does praying every morning, does that practice lead to some really good outcomes? And it did mm-hmm. in his life. Practicing Christianity. Again, the belief itself doesn't have to be true for the practice of it to really have wonderful benefits. So he's in this situation where he's like, I try... I was told by a reliable source that Jesus was true. I tried Jesus and it worked. I've no, I've had no reason to question that since then. And you go like, well, that's, you know, that's the same reason I sit on wooden chairs. Like I was told that they would hold my weight. I sat on them, they held my weight. Like I trust wooden chairs. <laughs> and, and so even though the belief itself might not be able to hold up under scrutiny, the act of ac- adopting it and then feeling really confident, it makes total sense. Oh, sure. And there's a real value to having some of these beliefs. I can see the family that we helped because my church all got together and raised money and said prayers and helped this poor family out. Um, I, the feelings that I have that this God is real, it's its so real to me. Um, it helps me get through a difficult time when I when I pray to a God and I think that, that's, that that entity is helping me. So these experiences that people are having are 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 extremely real and profound. What it really comes down to is we're not challenging the experience and the feelings right. that you're having from the belief. What we're interested in, especially when we're using an approach like street epistemology, is are you actually believing something that's true? We're not challenging the results that you might get from believing it uh, because it's entirely possible I can be believing something that's not true and get benefit from it. Are you, are you the type of person that wants to believe true things, regardless of the benefit that you may or may not be getting from it? That I think is probably the more fundamental question. And th- and that's where I that's where I got to ask you, like, do you think that it is, I don't know, like, responsible to plant the seed? that you know is going to undermine somebody's belief system if you can't replace the benefits for them. Like, so you got, you got this person and they're in this family 
and everybody believes. And if they stop believing, they're going to, they're going to be perhaps disenfranchised from their family. There are people that it's their, their job, their whole worldview, like their, their mother's dying of cancer. And this is the only thing that's keeping them from sinking into depression. And, mm. you know, or, or, or like they were a drug addict and they got in one of those programs and, and the people at the church got them a job and got them a house. And, and like their whole life is wrapped up in this community. And if that belief crumbles and they can't be part of that community anymore, do you have a new community to offer them? Well, that's a great question. And this comes up a lot in the street epistemology Facebook groups that we have. What kind of responsibility do we have as practitioners of this method? What options do these people have besides the belief structures that they might already be enmeshed in? And when do we abstain from actually participating in a conversation? These are all difficult questions. And I think each practitioner would probably answer it differently. There have been times where I've ended conversations with people because it seems evident that they would be harmed if they didn't have this belief. Uh, whenever I'm in doubt, generally as a, as, a, as a guide, I'll ask them if it's important for them to believe true things. Would you prefer to believe true things over things that may not be true, but still give you comfort? And if they put a high valuation on truth, and it's clear that they wouldn't suffer terribly if they discovered that their cherished belief wasn't true, then I'll usually proceed with them. This is one of the reasons why I think it's important for atheists to, and humanists and so forth to come out if you can and be involved in your community because there are people who are questioning whether they encounter somebody using SE or they observe a, an argument or something or a debate online or whatever. These are people who are looking for groups. They, they are looking for alternatives to the belief structures that they are currently surrounded by and so, alternatives to the com to the believing community mm -hmm. that, that they're a part of like the belief structure is one thing but there's also like i need another place to to, to go on sunday morning i i need it i need another group to go to the movies with on saturday night i, I like yeah. i like i i you know the, honestly watching this watching the street epistemology people at this at this uh columbus thing I was like, oh, they look just like my old high school youth group or my my college my college fellowship group. Like they're running around together. They have inside jokes. They're, they're and I thought like <laughs> that's that has its own value. Well, let, I don't want to cede too much ground to these religious groups. Um, they don't have a lock on community or or in group language or putting a bumper sticker on their car that might be promoting their cause. And these are things that humans are going to do regardless of where they stand on the view of a God existing. Oh, um, I, 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 if, I wish you could be in my counseling practice all week long because I get, I get people calling me and they are really isolated. And they like, yeah. if you're a Presbyterian and you're isolated in, in Cleveland, like you can go to the phone directory and you can find five groups that are, that, that will be thrilled to have you. Like, that's not always the case if you're if you're a nice secular humanist. There's not always a place for you to go. There are some groups though. Uh, we have recovering from religion, which is awesome. They have support groups too, where you can if if you like the face to face stuff, you've got the support groups from recovering from religion. You have the uh, the Oasis groups, which are kind of spreading out across the United States. I think they're in England too. I've even started a group because um, I, I I've had enough conversations with people where I challenge their beliefs in a respectful way and they begin to doubt and even discard their belief that it, I've, I've, I've discovered that we have a responsibility. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's one, one of the reasons why I started a group. It's a Facebook group for people who, there are some people who don't really care about the face to face stuff, but they still want the community. If you, uh, we have a, it's a secret Facebook group where nobody even knows that you're, that you'd be in it uh, except other members. Um, it's a, it's called Emerging Faith. Um, send an email to emergingfaithhelp at gmail.com if you want us to vet you. But that was that was a big discovery in in using SE. Like, holy cow, this seems to be really effective. These people are really starting to question. They're starting to doubt. Oh my gosh, they're giving up their belief. I have an obligation here. I just can't give them a card or not or just shake their hand and say goodbye. Um, I need to be there for these people if they need it. So there is a certain degree of responsibility, I think, if you decide yeah. to start engaging with people using this method or possibly even another method that that might cause a person to discard their views. And 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 that's the I I I think that, you know, there's the recovery process. Like, you know, when people 
transition out of something. Like there's this, like we were talking about before, there's this angry phase and you're, you're, you're confused and, and, and you, you sort of don't know how you're going to organize your thinking and your worldview. Um, and then there comes this phase after that where you're like, okay, now what do I do? Like, and particularly like, I still want to pursue loving relationships. I still want to make the world a better place. Like all the things that brought me into Christianity, <laughs> they, on the other side of Christianity, I still had those hungers and those desires. And so where do I, where do I do that? And I think that's why I was like, if you, if you make it clear that like we're engaging people at the beginning because we care about them, then I think it's much more natural to say, and because, you know, so because we care about them when they, if, if and when they sort of shed some erroneous beliefs, we got to be there for them on the other side too. I think it's critical. Huh? Yeah. I think it's critical, especially when we're starting to recognize the the potency of this particular approach. I think it, it would it would be a pretty nasty thing to do to just tear somebody down and just leave them there flailing in the wind. Yeah, um, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the people who do this we we try to be accessible. We give them a card. What's funny is um, if I remember the conversation that I had with Dan, who you met, uh, I gave him a card. But I, I don't know if he kept it or, or discarded it or what. He never reached out to me until years after. And that's when he reached out and wanted to talk and, and share his, his experience with me. But it, I think it's really important that if you, if you do encounter somebody who's challenging your worldview, that besides just going to the church that shares the same thing that you believe or your, your Bible study group or something, try to seek out other communities who maybe have gone through the process what do they find compelling that uh, that led them out? I, I would try to encourage people to just not, don't just try to insulate yourself back into the belief that's been challenged, but seek out other communities that have found their way out. Yeah. So how many people are doing this at this point, do you think? That's a good question. We don't really know. Uh, there's a couple of metrics that I can probably throw out. We have 3,000 people following the Street Epistemology Twitter there is closing in on 5,000 people in the main street epistemology Facebook group. We do have a list where the author who started all this has been asking for 10,000 people. I think we have 600 or so that have officially signed up on the list. If What's you were that to dude's ask me, name again? What's that dude's name again? Bogosian, Peter Bogosian. Are you buddies with him now? Uh, yeah, we're good friends. Okay. If you were to ask me how many people are practicing street epistemology, meaning that they occasionally use it when they hear somebody make a claim. Mm -hmm. I would say it's probably 10,000 people. That would be my guess. Just based on the type of video views that we're getting, the number of subscribers we have on our channels, the the emails that I get from people all over the world, I think it's probably a pretty safe estimate that we're probably at 10,000. How many of those do you think use like the camera like you do and actually make, oh, a, make a record? Very, very few. Why do you think that is? Well, it's weird for one thing. Uh, there's a certain amount of uh, maybe courage, I guess, it takes to to go out and initiate talks, and then not on, on top of that, record it, and then go through the effort of editing it and uploading it and trying to promote it. Maybe uh, you know, you might get a few cross-eyed looks from your loved ones if you if you announce that you were going to do this. So, but, but when you're doing, I, I would it, say we probably have a, between a dozen to twenty people who are currently doing it. When you're doing it, I get the feeling that you're doing it like you're tabling on a university campus. There's like you're set up there so that you have a clipboard in your hand so that somebody goes like, oh, he's a street canvasser or, or he's officially encountering me. You, you don't pretend it's like, you know, you're in the line at McDonald's and you, and you, and you, turn, you do it. It's clear that you're out there to talk to people. I think so. Uh, people can usually size me up pretty quickly like what I'm out there doing. They, they usually tend to see a camera. They see the clipboard. I try to greet them with a smile. And if they stop, then I, I try to very quickly explain what I'm doing if they haven't already asked me. And uh, I, I, of course, want to get their permission to record them. I try to explain the type of questions that I'll be asking, and I encourage them to pick a topic. And usually by that point, they feel safe enough with me that, and, and also that I'm probably not going to hold them for too long. They're usually a little bit more curious than afraid at that point. And most people, at least in my area, tend to stop and talk with me. If if you really are honest about your beliefs and you start asking yourself these questions, I really don't see how a religious person or somebody who believes in something supernatural 
would hold on to that belief for very long if they honestly started asking themselves these same types of questions. You should meet some of the apologists that I know. <laughs> I run into a lot of them online. Don't worry. Oh my gosh. But like but there, when I was growing up in church, there was a guy named Josh McDowell, whose famous book was called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, and it was all about like how Christianity would just like, if you just look at the evidence, you would believe it. And uh, he's still out there. But like his son, I knew growing up because my dad was a famous evangelist too. And uh and so Sean now teaches at Biola University, this big Christian college out in the Los Angeles area. And he's writing the apologetics books now. And I actually ended up up in Canada on a forum with him. Like he and I, you know, like the two people, you know, in, in front of a church of, you know, a thousand people. Um, and Matt Dillahunt, he shows up and he's in the audience, um, which was funny because I hadn't, I hadn't met Matt before that. And I was like, oh, he's, he's going to think I'm the worst. Cause I'm like Mr. Warm and fuzzy when I talk to Christians. Um, I'm, I'm just Mr. Warm and fuzzy anyway. Um, <laughs> but it was really interesting because, you know, these, these are people that are convinced that like they have evidence and that they have reasons and that their reasons will hold up to scrutiny. And you know, it's just remarkable to me because they don't. And it wasn't like I was attacking. I was just sort of going like, where, how, like, what about this? Mm, mm -hmm. But their confidence is incredibly strong because they're like, if it's true, it must be able to be, it must be supportable. And they're like, they start with it being true and then build the support backwards rather than starting with, is it supportable? If it's supportable, I'll believe it's true. They, they start with it being true. That tends to be my experience as well, that uh, most of these folks, especially the diehard apologists, uh, they're so tied to the belief being true. They've built careers on it being true. There would be a tremendous cost if they discovered that it wasn't true, that they then right. try to backfill and they'll take anything to support the belief at that point. Um, it is quite frustrating. I, I would much rather spend my time dealing with everyday lay believers than these diehard apologists who will just throw up reasons for their belief that they were never reasons why they believed. They're just difficult to defend or there's really no good answer other than I don't know. And they yeah. just glom onto that and, and think that that's just, that's just uh, the best way to defend their belief is to, to stymie, uh, stymie the non-believer. You're probably familiar with Upton Sinclair, whose you know, famous line was, it's very difficult to convince a man to change his mind about something if his salary depends upon him not changing his mind. <laughs> Love it. And I think for you know, what, what I always sort of think is like, yeah, what, what if it's not just your salary, but it's your marriage, it's your identity, it's your sense of purpose in the world. You know, like, you know, for me, I mean, you know, the remarkable, you know, when you say like some of these people that are disabused are like, how could I believe that? For me, the, the remarkable thing is not that I was a believer for you know 25 years or 30 years. The, the, the remarkable thing is that I made it out at all because by the time I started really wrestling on 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 on, on the hard edge of this stuff, I was so invested and you know I, I was a well known you know Christian leader. So it was incredibly you know the you know the cost was you know great in terms of that kind of. You know, I had a whole community. Mm -hmm. I'm genuinely enthusiastic about this because I feel like I feel like what you're teaching people is a way of establishing a durable connection, mm. which is really what I'm. You know, what what I think ultimately so many of our young people are dying for right now is they're like, I don't have many friends, I don't have many durable connections because like street epistemology isn't just good for you know, a, a, a stranger encounter. It's probably good in a marriage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, was this conversation, typically what happens is, is the people that listen to this podcast, what they, I get to talk shop about, about goodness with really interesting people that I'm just lucky enough to, 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 to know or to, or to connect with. And sometimes I'm, I'm just like, Hey, if you want to overhear the kind of like conversation that Anthony and I would have had if we were sitting in a, in a, in a, in a coffee shop, yeah. Good on you. This I was love that, that this interview was that style. I, I have those types of conversations with people like a Matt Dillahunty or Seth Andrews or um, Ryan Bell or something like that. I, although I haven't met Ryan in person. But yeah, I've always thought just an off the cuff 
discussion, like we were sitting down and just chatting, would be so would just be probably more enjoyable, I would think, for the audience than the type of questions that you might hear during an interview. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. There it was. Me and Anthony, I hope you dug the conversation. If you made it this far, you deserve a reward and a reward you shall have because I have a great Ingersoll quote for you. If you want to find out more about Anthony, it's all on the page. You can find it out. Just go to bartcampolo.org. And, uh, and you know, if you go to bartcampolo.org, you can find out all sorts of other stuff about counseling and coaching and anything you want to know about me. It's all there. You can, you can contact me too and tell me what you thought of the show. But in the meantime, here is the Ingersoll quote. Since, since I did opened up with the uh, eighth grade recommendation, the parenting moment, here's Ingersoll on parenting. Give your sons and daughters every advantage within your power. In the air of kindness, they will grow about you like flowers. They will fill your homes with sunshine and all your years with joy. Do not try to rule by force. A blow from a parent leaves a scar on the soul. Man, when I think about all the times I heard spare the rod, spoil the child. And uh, I just love that last line. Do not try to rule by force. A blow from a parent leaves a scar on the soul. Yeah, think about that. I agree with that. I mean, I'm sure there are times, especially when kids are little and you're trying to keep them out of traffic and you don't have good, la- they don't have language skills, you can't explain everything. Sometimes you, you may have to do that. I'm not, I'm not here to judge anybody. But even when it's necessary, it's important to understand that a blow from a parent leaves a scar on the soul. And I can think of some scars on, on both my kids' souls. And it doesn't mean that they that, that they didn't get over overwhelmed with love or that you know that, uh, there's all sorts of good things that happen. But I'm just telling you, I like what Ingersoll has to say, and I commend him to you. And I hope you like the show. And I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on Bart, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows. Call the Humanize Me Q-Line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jax Media. You could be larger than life.